Welcome to the Faith at Work Sermon Podcast. I'm Pastor Jim Melvin, and I invite you to join me as we explore the words of Scripture and dive into the depths of our faith for insights that will help us live more meaningful and peaceful lives. I welcome you no matter what faith tradition that you come from and trust that you will find something of value for you here. The title of today's sermon, Memento Mori, Remember You Must Die, may seem macabre or off-putting. Death is one of the last things that most of us want to talk about or think about in any depth. In Woody Allen's film, Love and Death, one of his friends is trying to reassure Allen's neurotic character about his death, and he says, death is just a part of life. Allen responds, yeah, the last part. Most reassurances about our death, even for the most devout Christians, fall short and leave us uneasy. During the past pandemic year, thoughts and images of death have not been far from our minds. Death came knocking at our door in ways that we hadn't experienced before. While we may be weary of hearing about all the mortality around us, maybe it's important for us to find a way to deal with it in a healthy manner. Now let me reassure you from the beginning that my purpose here is not to make anyone feel uncomfortable, and if I do, I hope to ease that discomfort somewhat in the end. I'm committed personally to the idea that it is important for us to seriously ponder death, including our own, in order to be able to come to terms with it and free us from its icy grip of fear and anxiety. I will humbly try to honor different perspectives and beliefs about death since this is such a personal subject and colored by our own experiences. Not only can a careful consideration of our death relieve us of anxiety, but it can also free us to live joyfully and completely. I would remind you that the central images of the Christian faith are the cross, which is the instrument of death, and the tomb, the destination of the dead. Much of Jesus' teaching has to do with preparing his disciples for his death and keeping a proper perspective on this life in light of its shortness. Here is the parable that Jesus taught. The land of a rich man produced abundantly, and he thought to himself, What should I do? For I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. God said to him, You fool! This very night your life is being demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So it is with those who store up treasures for themselves, but are not rich toward God. Jesus' message is clear. Don't focus exclusively on this life to the point that you neglect to consider your mortality. In this case, he particularly talks about not obsessing on our material goods since they could be taken from us by death at any time. The writer of Ecclesiastes despairs over having to give up the stuff he worked for. He moans, 
So I turned and gave my heart up to despair concerning all the toil of my labors under the sun, because someone else who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave all to be enjoyed by another who did not toil for it. This is all vanity and a great evil. So how can we avoid ending up in despair when pondering the shortness of life? That's the aim of memento mori, the Latin for remember you must die. A symbolic or artistic reminder of the inevitability of death. It's rooted in classical philosophy and has been picked up and used in Christianity and the church for centuries and other religions. The Roman philosopher Seneca wrote, Let us prepare our minds as if we'd come to the very end of life. Let us postpone nothing. Let us balance life's books each day. The one who puts the finishing touches on their life each day is never short of time. You know, I was an exchange student on a farm in southern Sweden when I was in high school. The church buildings where I attended worship with my Swedish family were built in the 11th century. One Sunday morning after services, the pastor took us down to the crypt below the sanctuary where the local wealthy landowners from many centuries past were interred. The pastor inserted a huge iron key into the lock of the arched wood door, which creaked eerily as it opened. Rows of six-sided tapered wooden coffins were arranged on stone pedestals throughout the musty cellar. The pastor took delight in showing me the glass window in one of those coffins, through which I could see the desiccated smile of a deceased noblewoman. And he pointed to a stone arch above the coffin and translated the Latin, saying, Where we have gone, you shall soon follow. Memento mori, indeed. That night, as I tossed in bed, I couldn't help but remember that I must die. I became homesick. I thought of all my friends and family from whom I'd been separated. In those days, I was only able to phone home once in three months. The separation was a kind of death. I might never see them again. Memento mori was not a source of peace, but anxiety. It induced night terrors for me for quite a while. Well, I didn't know it when I visited the church in Sweden, but that was the era when memento mori practices were becoming popular in the Christian church in Europe. As in the church I visited, it was a common theme in architecture. I was reminded of that when I visited the Capella dos Ossos, the Chapel of Bones, in Rome, whose walls are lined with human bones. The entrance to the chapel bears the inscription, We bones lying here bare await yours. One order of Christian monks used memento mori as a greeting. That's the way they said hi to each other. Now, I think if somebody greeted me by saying, Remember, you must die, I might respond, Well, it's good to see you too. Memento mori jewelry was popular. Men and women wore rings, pendants, lockets, and brooches adorned with skulls, bones, and coffins. They bore ominous inscriptions. Mary, Queen of Scots, had a large watch carved in the shape of a skull with an engraving which read, 
pale death knocks with the same tempo upon the huts of the poor and the towers of kings. Music is another medium which possesses a rich memento mori tradition. During the times of the plague, those surrounded by death turn to music and chants to help them deal with the grim reality or get used to it. This stanza came from a medieval piece originally composed in Latin. Life is short, and shortly it will end. Death comes quickly and respects no one. Death destroys everything and takes no pity on no one. To death we are hastening. Let us refrain from sinning. Literature throughout history is replete with images reminding us of the inevitability of death. Many of Emily Dickinson's poems written in the 19th century are filled with these images. One of my favorites is this one. Because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me. The carriage held but just ourselves in immortality. We drove slowly, he knew no haste, and I'd put away my labor and my leisure too for his civility. We passed the school where children strove at recess. In the ring, we passed the fields of gazing grain. We passed the setting sun, or rather he passed us. The dews drewed quivering and chill, for only gossamer my gown, my tippet only tool. We pause before a house that seemed a swelling in the ground. The roof was scarcely visible, the cornice in the ground. Since then tis centuries, and yet feels shorter than the day. I first surmised the horses' heads were toward eternity. There's a time for each of us when we figure out that the horses pulling our carriage are headed toward eternity. We have two options. Deny and ignore our mortality until the time has come, or look it squarely in the face and prepare our hearts and souls and our minds to deal with reality. It's the clear position of the Christian church and most other religions to help us do the latter. First, let's think about what it is that death has that we're so desperate to avoid talking about. Let me consider three. The fear of non-being, the pain of loss, and the fear of punishments of hell. The fear of non-being, closely related to the fear of the unknown, plagues many of us. The angst over non-being cannot be put more clearly than in Hamlet's soliloquy, which begins with one of the most famous lines in literature, to be or not to be. This is a hard question to struggle with. We can't imagine the world without us. The void is imponderable. Of course, not being presumes that there is no eternal life, which I'll discuss soon. The great barrier to dealing with death is the pain of loss. It's the pain that we become familiar with when someone we know and love dies. Loss hurts. I remember talking to my dad the day before he died. He wasn't seriously ill, but he must have had some sort of premonition, as many people do before they die. He said, I'm not afraid to die. I'm just going to miss all of you so much. When someone we love dies, we lose that person. When we die, 
we lose everything. We assume that if it hurts to lose one person, it will hurt much more when we lose everything. And then there is the fear of the punishment of hell. Many Christians, but not all, have grown up with the prospect of going to hell as the ultimate motivator in life and the final threat. They're taught the existence of a literal place of eternal punishment and unending pain. The alternative heaven is a place of eternal bliss. Unfortunately, there's a common teaching that a lot more people are headed to hell than to heaven. This creates fear and anxiety as we wonder just how good we have to do to make the cut. A favorite Larson cartoon, which used to hang in my office, pictures a line of sad-faced people descending an escalator to hell, while the smiling devil stands with a pitchfork in, in hand in front of a sign which reads, Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Well, those are the negatives. What about the other side of the ledger? What does death have going for it? For some, death is welcomed as a relief from suffering. There are many people who must deal with intractable pain who are physically unable to function in anything near a normal life. Death, whether it comes as a relief from eternal, of eternal sleep or the bliss of heaven, is welcome. For others, the mental pain and suffering of depression leaves death as the only way out, something that's leading them to take their own lives. Death, sadly, can seem the only way out. Others see death not as a way out of this life, but as an entrance to a new and better life, a life of bliss and perpetual joy. There will be no more tears and no more pain. It will be a life beyond our imaginations. For many years, I visited a homebound woman of great faith, and she lived to nearly a hundred, and every time I saw her, she said, I just can't wait for the Lord to take me home. It's going to be so wonderful. Since the Bible gives us scant information about what heaven will look like, individual believers have different visions of the heavenly realms. Heavenly life will be just like this life, with all the pain and sorrow and struggle removed. Heaven will be just like it's described in the book of Revelation, a jeweled city with streets of gold. Or heaven will be the best thing that you can imagine. Or heaven will be a cloud-like state of eternal bliss. Whatever your particular vision of heaven, it's a place to look forward to with a sense of hope that overcomes all our fears. Finally, one of the things that people look forward to in death is being reunited with the people that they have loved and lost. This is a major concern among older people who have died. In the, in the Lutheran funeral liturgy, we pray, we look forward to being reunited with those we love in the world of the life to come. Death is an invitation to a great reunion that will heal us of all the pain that we have suffered through loss. In the Christian church during the Lenten season, Christians are invited to enter a six-week-long long journey of contemplation of their death. 
The journey begins on Ash Wednesday when worshipers come forward to have a cross of ashes smeared on their foreheads, and the pastor intones the word that God said to Adam and Eve after they disobeyed him. Remember, you are dust, and to dust you shall return. I can tell you, after performing that ritual many times, from looking at the faces of people receiving the ashes, that people take those words seriously. This Ash Wednesday ritual would be a sadistic act, and the six weeks of Lent would be a torture. Would it not be for the destination of that journey that Lenten travelers know lies ahead? The celebration of Easter and the resurrection to eternal life. On Easter, we hear the story of how Christ died and was raised from the dead. That's an amazing story. But more amazing is that it comes with the promise from the Apostle Paul. As he was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too will also walk in a new life. I realize that in the few minutes we have had together, there is little that I could do to give you any great comfort in dealing with death, nor, I hope, to shake the faith of believers. The best that I can do is for the hope to leave you with the thought and perhaps the perspective that death is not the end of life, but a new beginning, and that you may more fully appreciate every moment of the life that you are living. And I hope that in the words memento mori, you may begin a new journey of discovery to a life of joy and hope. May God bless you. Memento mori. Remember you must die. But also, l'chaim, to life. Amen. Thank you for joining me this week. May God bless you and keep you.